Well, this morning we will be continuing our series in the book of Ephesians. Um, We had gotten through the extended word of praise from Paul towards God uh, in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And now we're going to cover his prayer at the end of the first chapter. Now, as I was thinking about his prayer, I was actually thinking about the origin of self-help. You guys are familiar with that term. You guys are familiar with those words. And actually, it went all the way back to Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin was one of the most well-known founding fathers of our country. He was a man of incredible intellect and talent. He was, amongst other things, an author, a printer, a political theorist, a politician, postmaster, scientist, inventor, humorist, civic activist, statesman, and diplomat. That's quite a resume, isn't it? It makes me uh, feel quite inadequate. Now, one thing that he was not, as far as anyone could tell, was a Christian. He was not, by any known account, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet he published an annual almanac from 1733 to 1758, And in it, you could often find the phrase, God help them that help themselves. God help them that help themselves. Now, if that maxim sounds familiar, it's because over a century later in 1859, a Scottish author and government reformer by the name of Samuel Smiles would provide a variation of that saying by saying, heaven helps those who help themselves. And I'm sure... Most of you, if not all of you, have heard that once or perhaps multiple times in your life. That statement, heaven helps those who help themselves, that was the opening line of his book titled Self-Help. And that ended up launching him into celebrity status almost overnight. Now, that book was not at all a spiritual book, but rather it spoke about individual responsibility. He claimed that poverty was caused by irresponsible life habits, and he was highly critical of both materialism and a laissez-faire style of government, where the government is hands-off and allows people to act independently. Well, by the time Samuel Smiles had passed in 1904, that book had sold over a quarter million copies. Even the founder of Toyota Industries, the same Toyota who makes cars to today, The founder of Toyota Industries was so influenced by this book, Self-Help, that he put a copy of it under a glass display at a museum located at his birth site. Well, the book, Self-Help, ended up sparking an industry of books predicated on this notion of self-improvement. In the early 1900s, a man by the name of Dale Carnegie became fascinated with the link between confidence, self-confidence, and success And he would publish a book in 1936 titled, How to Win Friends and Influence People. That book became one of the best-selling books of all time, selling over 15 million copies worldwide. In fact, that book was so influential that even as recently as 2011, Time Magazine ranked it number 19 on the 100 all-time most influential books. And by the start of this millennium, The self-help industry as a whole had grown into a $2.5 billion a year industry by at least one person's estimate. And as recently as 2013, 
the industry was valued as an $11 billion industry. Now, the industry extends far beyond books. Self-help has reached into other mediums, such as infomercials, mail-order catalogs, holistic institutes, audio learning, video learning, motivational speaker seminars, the personal coaching market, weight loss and stress management programs, just to name a few. Now think about this for a moment. We as a country, we spend several billions of dollars every year just trying to find ways to help ourselves be better, be healthier, be richer, more successful, or more satisfied. And even as a young professional in the corporate world, I remember being encouraged to read Stephen Covey's Covey's book titled Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. That book continues to be a bestseller even today. Now, I don't want to disparage the entire self-help industry. There is some helpful advice that you can glean from some of those books. The problem is that these self-help books These self-help tips, these videos, these seminars, they're not directed at our biggest need, which is how we can grow as Christians. What we need to learn is how to grow in godliness, how to become more like Christ, how to become more faithful in our walk, how to be more useful to the kingdom of God, how to successfully engage in spiritual warfare. And fortunately, we have... Fortunately, we have something infinitely better than all the self-help books combined. Amen? We have the Word of God, which is not self-help, but rather it is God-help. In fact, think back to when Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples. What did he promise that he would send to them? Literally, he said in John 14, 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. And of course, Jesus was referring to the Holy Spirit. So when I say we have God help, I mean it literally. You have God as your helper in both the word of God and the Holy Spirit that resides in you if you have confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and repented of your sins. So unlike the world, which chases after temporal pursuits, We want to pursue godliness, holiness, usefulness to God and his kingdom. And that's why I not only love scripture, but I especially appreciate the prayers that you read in scripture. You can learn a lot by studying the prayers of the saints in the Bible. And the Apostle Paul is certainly no exception. In fact, we have already seen from the opening section of Ephesians that Paul has no trouble lifting up praise to God for his marvelous work of salvation from verses 3 through 14. This is the kind of praise when we understand that praise, when we understand why Paul is giving such praise to God for salvation, we can lift up that same praise to God in prayer as well. But what we see from Paul is that after he completes that opening praise... He shares with the Ephesians his prayer for them. And not surprisingly, his prayer was not circumstance-driven. It did not depend upon culture. It wasn't driven by secular wisdom. It wasn't affected by the current philosophies of the day. Rather, his prayers reflected needs that saints have in every age. They reflected God's unchanging desires for his people. They are based upon God's will as revealed in God's word for God's people. 
And when you read these saintly prayers written for other saints, you find out very quickly what should matter to us most. You find out very quickly where our priorities should be and how we can ensure that we are on the way to becoming what God wants us to be and not what the world wants to be. We pursue different things than what the world pursues. So I've titled this morning's message as Paul's pastoral prayer for you. Of course, we know that Paul was an apostle, but he was also very much a pastor to these churches that he helped to start. And he had a very pastoral heart for them and for their development. Now, while Paul was writing to believers in Ephesus, his prayer is absolutely timeless. And it is timeless because it comes from a timeless source. It applies just as much today to us as it did to the Ephesians nearly 2,000 years ago. And beloved, his prayer is better than any self-help book. It is God help to us in how to grow in our walk with God. And rather than pursuing the things of the world, we will find much more sanctifying pursuits in God. So my purpose this morning is to use Paul's prayer to show that God desires what God desires Christians to pursue in order to walk faithfully with God. And specifically this morning, Paul will reveal five timeless God-centered pursuits that every, every Christian needs to walk faithfully with God. And I would encourage you as we go through this to avoid the temptation of just glossing over these words of prayer. We can often do that as we're reading the scripture, thinking this is just introductory material. Let's get into the meat of the book. Avoid the temptation of doing that. Paul is not just throwing together a lot of flashy theological terms in order to sound spiritual. Sometimes that's what we do, but that's not what Paul does. There's real meaning in what he says. There's a real purpose behind each and every one of his words. And while I had originally intended this to be one message, I realize that in putting it together, I'll probably have to split this up into two. So in your bulletin, you see five points. Um, I can guarantee you I'll get through the first two points. And whatever I don't cover, we'll come back to next week. So this morning will be part one of Paul's pastoral prayer for you. So let's go ahead and read our passage for this morning in its entirety. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Paul writes this. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him up from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
Now, just like verses 3 through 14 that we studied over the course of the last three weeks, these nine verses that I just read, they all constitute one Greek sentence. So again, Paul is still continuing with the run-on sentences. I mean, he's got these extensive thoughts that he's bridging together with these singular sentences. They're all tightly connected, these thoughts that you'll find in these singular sentences. So if you think about this first chapter, after giving his introduction in the first two verses, he gives one long sentence of prayer from verses 3 to 14, followed by this long sentence of thanksgiving and Prayer. Sorry, the first was praise, and then this long sentence of thanksgiving and prayer from verses 15 to 23. So as a reminder, Paul's prayer will reveal five timeless pursuits that every Christian needs to walk faithfully with God. And the very first is to remain steadfast in your faith and love. To remain steadfast in your faith and love. Looking at verses 15 to 16, we read, For this reason I too... Having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Now, it is standard for Paul to provide a word of thanksgiving in just about all of his letters that he writes. What's unusual here is that he typically starts the letter with thanksgiving. But instead, in Ephesians, he really started with praise followed by thanksgiving. And I, I think there's... A real purpose behind that. He wanted to start the praise so that the thanksgiving could be linked to that praise, to that extensive word of praise. So this is no accident. Paul starts off in verse 15 with the phrase, for this reason. And then that raises the question, well, for what reason? Well, obviously, that connects to the prior 12 verses that we had studied the past three weeks. Remember, Paul's praise over the wondrous blessings of God's salvation. It including God, it included God choosing us before the foundation of the world in order that we would be holy and blameless. It included God predestining us to adoption as sons, to giving us redemption, which is the forgiveness of sins to making known the mystery of his will in Christ, which is that Christ is the climax of all human history. It included us receiving the inheritance that he predestined for us to receive. It included us being sealed in the Holy Spirit of promise. It including, included us being redeemed as God's possession. And all of that was for the praise of God's glory. So having just completed that extended word of praise, he then connects it to his own reason for thanksgiving to the Ephesians. Paul says, for this reason, I too, or the New King James says, I also. There's this idea that Paul has given praise to God for his blessings, but because of God's blessings, Paul also recognizes the result of those blessings upon the Ephesian believers. He has just praised God for his work of salvation, and now he's giving thanks to the work of God in the believers at Ephesus. So you see in verse 16 that he never ceases to give thanks for them also. That's the main clause here, that he does not cease to give thanks. But in verse 15, we have a what we call a dependent clause. It's not just because of God's plan of salvation, but it's also connected to what Paul has heard of them. Now, some critics of this letter say that if Paul had spent so much time in Ephesus, which we know he spent upwards to three years, he should have already known what was true about them without needing a report. So why would he need a report about them in order to give praise to them? Well, remember, Ephesus comprised of a very large area, 
At this time in history, it's estimated that about 250,000 people were in Ephesus and some surrounding villages in the area. Plus, Paul's been away for several months at least, and you know that much can happen in a period of that time. But notice the two reasons for encouragement in verse 15. As verse 15 says, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists amongst you, and your love for all the saints. Of course, he knew that there had been believers here, but the key is that it continues. Faith in Jesus Christ is obviously what all of us have in common, what all of us Christians share as a common baseline. But it is more than just a one-time confession. The idea here is that their faith is ongoing. It continues to demonstrate itself. Now, there are many people within the church, and you've seen them in the past, I'm sure, if you've been in the church long enough. There are many people within the church who depart from the church for extended periods or who walk away completely. Beloved, let me just say this. You're clearly not walking with God if you're not actively worshiping with a body of believers on a regular basis. But Paul also cites their love for all the saints. Isn't that interesting? You see, for any shepherd, any pastor, any kind of elder or overseer, if you're away from a group of believers for any period of time, there are two things that you want to hear about those believers. If I were ever gone from Western Avenue for an extended period of time, there are two things I too would want to hear about all of you. One is that you're continuing to worship the Lord together. You're continuing to show your faith in your worship. You're continuing to walk with the Lord, continuing to hope for his coming, continuing to share the good news. And secondly, I'd want to hear about your love for one another. In fact, that's what the Bible says. This is how the world will know that we belong to him with our love for one another. And we know the two greatest commandments from God, right? The first is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second is to do what? Love your neighbor as yourself. But in particular here, unbelievers will know believers by their love, not simply just for everyone, but particularly for their love for their fellow brothers and sisters. That's why Paul says your love for all the saints. He doesn't say your love for everyone. Of course, that should be there, but specifically your love for all the saints. And here at Western Avenue Baptist Church, that love for the saints would look like much. It would look much the same as in any other church that you're meeting each other's needs. You're ministering to one another, knowing that we have people who are sick, who are who are nursing from injuries or who have health problems or who may be even facing terminal illnesses that you're praying for them. You're reaching out to them. You're seeking to minister to them. This past week, I received some um, grave news that someone who used to be a part of my Bible study at my prior church, who hadn't attended for about five or six years, he disappeared from church completely. I barely knew him. I, he, he had left shortly after I had joined. And I found out that he has kidney failure, he has all kinds of physical failures, he appears to be terminal, he's getting very, very weak, and suddenly I've had a bunch of people from my Bible study calling me up saying, can you reach out to this man, can you talk to him, can you talk to him? Um, because since then he hasn't been in church. Now I have tried to reach him, I have not been able to, 
But I was encouraged that there were a number of people from my Bible study that despite not having seen him for years, despite not even knowing whether he's in the faith or not, the moment they knew he was in the hospital, we had people that were there every single day praying with him, spending time with him, sharing the word with him, helping to try in any way possible to encourage him and to in any way possible to make sure that he understands the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that's the kind of love that we need to demonstrate for one another. We have needs within the body. We have a prayer sheet that gets um, updated every single week. We pray about it on Wednesday, but I'm looking to incorporate more opportunities for prayer. That's the other announcement I forgot. There will be um, some more opportunities for prayer. Look out for that in the next week or two. Uh, but we need to be loving each other, praying for one, another, for one another, encouraging one another, meeting each other's needs. And I so appreciate that this church is a very service-oriented church. You guys are so willing to serve one another. Well, I would say excel still more and recognize that there are other needs as well. People that could really be blessed by you visiting, people that could be really blessed by a text message, just letting them know that you're thinking about them, you're praying for them. Now, listen, I'm not saying that if you do all those things, so I'm not saying that if you're here as a believer, if you're here at church and you're doing all these externally, it's not proof that you're a believer. That's legalism. When we focus too much on the works rather than faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, that's a works-based mentality that can confuse the fruit of salvation with the root of salvation. And in fact, there are many people in the body of Christ, you may have seen some, who look the part, they act the part, but they, were, they never truly put their faith into Christ. And you see that evident when they walk away, when they completely reject the faith, or when they reveal their sinful hearts. So just because you look godly externally, it doesn't mean that you have a regenerate heart internally. However, if you are truly saved, if you do truly have the Holy Spirit, if you have truly repented of your sins and are truly following after the Lord Jesus Christ, then these fruits should be evident in your life. So it's not that externally you can prove anything, but that internally, if there's an internal reality that's, that's inclined towards God, fruit should appear from that. Now, if these fruits are not characteristic of your walk, then I would ask you to examine yourselves. Examine whether you truly are in the faith, whether you truly do love the Lord Jesus Christ, whether you truly have repented of your sins and are following after him as your own personal Lord. Or if maybe you are saved, but you have lost sight of your first love. And if you have lost sight of your first love, I would urge you to come back. Remind yourself of the greatness of the Lord. Remind yourself of the greatness of our God. Remind yourself of the greatness of your salvation. And if you do notice these fruits as part of your walk, then I would say make sure that it reflects an inward reality because sometimes we can do all the right things externally in order to seek the approval of man rather than the approval of God. Make sure your motivations are correct that you're doing this out of a heart and desire to serve God. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying you're going to do that perfectly. I'm not saying that there aren't moments where you're going to desire appreciation or recognition from other people. But we all always have to constantly check our heart and make sure our motivations are right. But going back to Ephesians 1.16, Paul does not just give thanks to God for them and, and their faith and their love for all the saints. He finishes verse 16 by saying, while making mention of you in my prayers. 
So what does an apostle pray for on behalf of fellow saints? Well, I think it's fair to say that an apostle, one who is a shepherd of God, especially one commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ, would pray for what is most important in your spiritual walk. Would you agree? If Paul was moved by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we know he was, if Paul was truly a godly man who lived a life that was glorifying to God, then you can rightly assume that when he prays for fellow saints, he is praying for what's most important in their lives. And what is that, we would ask? What is it that Paul ends up praying for? Well, that leads us to the second timeless pursuit that every Christian needs to walk faithfully with God. The first is to remain steadfast in your faith and love. The second is to incline your heart to the illumination of God's word. To incline your heart to the illumination of God's word. And while the second part starts in verse 17, it really connects to that ending part in verse 16. So I'll pick it up from that end of 16. Paul says, while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And then he goes on to talk about the results, which we'll get to a little bit later. So what we see in verse 17 and at the start of 18 is really the content of those prayers. He makes mention of the Ephesians in his prayers, and these are the things that he prays for. And of course, it has to start with referencing the one who answers prayers, the one from whom all good and perfect things come from. Paul refers to God by two titles. The first is highly familiar. He is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to some, when they hear that, this might sound like God the Father is superior to Jesus Christ. After all, Paul here is referring to God the Father as Jesus Christ's God. To some, it suggests that Jesus is just a man. And to others, they might argue that Jesus is a lesser God, lesser than God the Father. Of course, if you know the rest of Scripture, you know that this is absolutely untrue. In John 5.18, John 5.18, we read that the Jewish leaders wanted to persecute Jesus because Jesus, by calling himself God's son, was making himself equal to God. The Jews understood that. By calling yourself God's son, you're making yourself equal to God, which is all the more reason why they wanted to persecute him. We know that in the Gospel of John, the very start of the Gospel of John starts with, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And in Titus 2.13, Paul refers to Jesus as our great God and Savior. Even going back to the Old Testament, verses like Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, Isaiah 9, 6, refer to the coming child who would be born, who among other things would be, be called mighty God. So you see that even in the Old Testament. So what this phrase here in Ephesians 1 does show if, if it's not meant to show that Jesus is inferior because we know he's not, what it does show is that Jesus, in becoming a man, willingly submitted himself to the will of God the Father. Turn to the uh, book of Philippians. Um, next book over to the right. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, we read this. Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, 
who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he had existed in the form of God. He was equal with God, but he didn't consider it something that he had to clutch onto. Rather, he humbled himself by taking on the form of a man. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a man. And then when you go down to verse 8, it reads, Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But it's not only that. It's not only that he was obedient to God the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross, but it's also that Jesus awaited for the right time for God the Father to exalt him. You look at verse 9, it says, For this reason also... It says, God highly exalted him. This wasn't Jesus saying, okay, now it's my time. I'm taking over. No, he waited for God to exalt him. And God is the one that bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So when Jesus came and submitted himself to God the Father, he had no reservations about calling God the Father his God. And yet he could also say, he who has seen me has seen the Father, right? And the second title Paul uses for God is the Father of Glory. Now, this is more than just calling God the Father glorious. I mean, you could, he could have called him the glorious Father. But by calling him the Father of Glory, he's really emphasizing that glory aspect. Turn back to Ephesians 1. At this point, Paul has just considered the last 12 verses that we read before this morning's message at this point, Paul has used the word glory three times in his extended praise. In fact, if you look at these verses real quick, in chapter 1, verse 6, it starts off with, to the praise of the glory of his grace. In verse 12, it ends with, be to the praise of his glory. And verse 14 ends with, to the praise of his glory. And that glory belongs to God. It belongs to God the Father. It comes from God. That's why Paul uses the term Father of glory rather than just glorious Father. It emphasizes that glory, that, that this glory that he's worthy of praise specifically belongs to God the Father. But continuing on, Paul's prayer is that God may do what? Take a look at the end of verse 17. Reading from the start, it says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And now we have arrived at probably the biggest interpretive issue in this passage. If you have the NASB translation, you see this as a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Whereas if you have the ESV or the New King James, it says the spirit of wisdom and revelation. That's a pretty big difference, right? So which is it? Why does one translation have one and the other translations have another? Now, oftentimes people think that if you know the Greek, so someone, someone looking at this go, well, well, read for me the Greek. Tell me what the Greek says, and that'll settle it all. all right? Knowing the Greek doesn't always resolve these issues. In fact, knowing the Greek can sometimes reveal issues you didn't know existed. So just knowing the Greek doesn't resolve all interpretational difficulties. In fact, literally the Greek just reads spirit of wisdom and of revelation. There's no definite article. Okay, there's no definite article. In other words, it's anarthris. That's just a fancy grammatical word saying that there's no article. And, and unlike English, the Greek has no indefinite article. So an indefinite article in English is a or an. So you can say a car or an apple, right? And you're, you're being 
non-definite about it. You're being indefinite in your reference. Um, the Greek has no such word. So when there's no definite article, the logical response might be, well, if there's no definite, definite article, it must be indefinite, right? Well, not exactly, because sometimes a noun without an article in Greek can actually be definite. And an example is the word God. The word for God is theos. Sometimes it has the article and other times it doesn't, even when it's referring to the same one and true God. You can see that through the book of John if you're looking to the Greek. So in cases where there's no article, we have to determine by context whether the noun is definite or not. Uh, that's why we have this dis disagreement between these major translations. So which is it? Which is correct? Is it the spirit or is it a spirit? Well, the first possibility is that it is the Holy Spirit. Because if it is the Spirit, like the ESV and the New King James have translated, that would clearly refer to the Holy Spirit. Now, that would make sense because the Spirit can easily be associated with wisdom and revelation. He is a spirit of wisdom, and he is also a spirit of revelation who provides us with revelation. But here's the problem. Paul is praying that God gives you the Holy Spirit, Whereas just back in verse 13, look at verse 13, Paul said that you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So the inference there is that you already have the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. So if you have the Holy Spirit, why is Paul praying that he would give you the Holy Spirit? Now, some commentators have explained this as it's not that Paul is praying that God gives them something that they already have. But it's not necessarily to give the Holy Spirit, but rather a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. You see this idea in verses like 1 Corinthians 12, 7, where Paul refers to manifestations of the Spirit. But in that context, he's referring to the various gifts of the Spirit that he gives to believers. And the problem is that each person receives a different spiritual gift. Not everyone receives the same spiritual gift. But here, Paul is praying that all believers receive this wisdom and revelation. So that's one possibility, though it's not without its complications. The second possibility is a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Now, a spirit would refer to the inner man. It's like when Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well that God is seeking true worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus was not talking about worshiping in the Holy Spirit, but rather worshiping from the inner man, that you're not only worshiping according to truth, but you're worshiping from your heart, from the inside and out. So that could be a possibility. And this certainly works well for wisdom. We have a heart or attitude that seeks wisdom, and, and we can find the wisdom in God's word. But we have a problem with revelation. Because revelation can only come from God, not from our own attitudes or efforts. So that's a possibility, but it too has some complications. There is yet a third possibility. If you ever sat in the midweek Bible study with Terry Norris, you're going to hear him bring up the word genitive at least once every single week. And that's because genitives are found all over the Bible. And I tell you, interpreters get excited when we see genitives. Because there are so many possibilities of meaning, and, and you've got to look at the context to figure out what meaning is being determined here. Now, in this case, we have two genitives. When it says, of wisdom and revelation. So, of wisdom is one genitive, of revelation is another genitive. Both of them clearly connected to the word spirit. And anytime you see that kind of phrasing, phrasing like of wisdom, of revelation, the word of followed by a noun, you have what's called a genitive relationship or construct. 
This is getting very technical. Bear with me, and, and you'll see where I go with this. Genitive constructs can convey many different types of meaning despite looking the same. And we have this in English. I mean, we have this in English when you think about it. For example, if you were to bring me a wooden bucket, and I tell you I don't want a bucket of wood, I want a bucket of metal. Well, what am I referring to? I'm referring to the material of the bucket, right? I want you to bring me a metal bucket, not a wooden bucket. Now, if I were working with a hammer and I tell you I want a bucket of nails, what am I saying? Am I saying I want a bucket that's made out of nails? No, I'm saying I want a bucket that contains nails. So what you see is that you have the same grammatical construct, a bucket of metal, a bucket of nails. Grammatically, they look the same, but in context, they mean two different things. So in English, we just automatically understand this. We hear it and we understand it. Now, if out of nowhere I was to say, give me a bucket of metal, you might step back and say, well, do you mean a metal bucket or a, metal that or a bucket that contains metal? So you need some context to try to figure those things out. And in this case, when we have the spirit of wisdom and revelation, there's another type of genitive construct that can apply here, and it's called an attributed genitive, an attributed genitive. You don't need to remember all that. Just realize that there's this possibility. As an example, Paul makes reference in Romans, in the book of Romans, chapter 6, verse 4, to the newness of life, talking about how believers will walk in newness of life. Now think about that phrase for a moment. Newness of life, the word newness is meant to describe life, right? So the idea is that you're walking with new life. You have new life. So why doesn't Paul just say new life? Well, he doesn't just say new life. He instead says newness of life because by saying newness of life, he's really emphasizing that new aspect of it. It communicates something very similar, but it has an extra emphasis upon the adjective, upon the descriptor. Well, we have something similar here. So when we see spirit of wisdom and of revelation, the other possibility is that spirit is meant as a descriptor for wisdom and revelation. So in other words, if you were to take spirit and turn it into an adjective, you would have spiritual. So this is spiritual wisdom and revelation. So spirit is being used as a descriptor for both words. And if you have the new living translation or the new um, English translation, that is exactly how they translated it. The same idea also seems to be paralleled in Colossians 1.9. You can, you can write down Colossians 1.9 where Paul prays for spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, this is the, actually the translation that I would favor. The fact that Paul is emphasizing the spiritual aspect ties in well with the prior section. Because remember, in that extended word of praise, he starts in verse 3 by blessing God. Blessed be the God and our Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every what? Spiritual blessing. And then the rest from verses 4 to 14 goes on to help explain what those spiritual blessings are. So that might be the purpose of, of Paul wanting to emphasize the spiritual aspect of wisdom and understanding. Now you can see that with each one of these three explanations, they are very different from one another. Okay, one refers to the Holy Spirit, if you read it as the spirit of wisdom and revelation. One refers to the inner man, if you read it as a spirit of wisdom and revelation. And another refers to what we just talked about, which is the spiritual aspect, the, the spiritualness of the wisdom and revelation. Now, having stepped through all that, having stepped through all of that, let me say this. No matter which of those three possibilities you favor, the big picture actually remains unchanged. So you may be asking, Pastor, 
If the big picture is unchanged, why did you just step us through all that detail? Well, I just stepped you through all that detail because I want you to see what's involved in being a student of Scripture. When you slow down and try to understand each word, each phrase, each sentence. And by the way, I couldn't have come to the conclusion that the big picture is not affected unless I understood those possibilities first. I had to look through each of those possibilities. Now, when I say the big picture is unaffected, what do I mean by that? Because if we're talking about a manifestation of the Holy Spirit, we're still talking about blessings given from God through the Holy Spirit to the believer, which results in wisdom and revelation. If you're talking about an inner attitude of wisdom and revelation, well, we know that true wisdom and revelation still comes from God, and it's a ministry of the Holy Spirit. So it's still... You're still dependent upon the fact that God is the one that has to give it to you. God gives you wisdom and revelation, and God gives it to you through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And if we're talking about that third possibility, spiritual, the the spiritual nature of wisdom and revelation, you still have all the same components. It's given to you by God. Spiritual wisdom and revelation can't be received except except with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So, If nothing else, realize that there is a lot of work that goes into trying to understand these differences. And we want to understand the implication of each of these differences. And in this case, I want you to also have great confidence. Great confidence? What do you mean by that? Because as we look in the scripture, you can look at the NASB. You can look at the ESV and recognize, wait a second, they're saying two different things. But you can have great confidence because whether it means one or the other, the big picture is still the same. You can still read the scriptures and understand that God is the one that gives you wisdom and revelation, and he does it through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that is exactly what Paul is praying that you receive. So this is reason for great confidence in the text, reason for great confidence that even though sometimes we're unsure of the specifics, the big picture is still very clear. And this is going to be helpful when you see scoffers who point to these differences and say, look, even your interpreters can't agree with one another. Well, yeah, they might disagree on minor points, but the big picture still remains unchanged. Now, having gone through these three possibilities, let me remind you what Paul's prayer request is. Look again at verse 17. He's praying that God may give to you um, a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, the Greek word for wisdom is Sophia. That's where you get the name Sophia. You meet someone named Sophia, that comes from the Greek word for wisdom. I've mentioned this previously in in a prior sermon covering Ephesians 1.8, but wisdom can refer to teachings, uh, or it can be teachings of the world or teachings of God. It is more than just mere knowledge. Knowledge is really just facts. It's, It's just information. Um, that consists of of facts and and dry information, but wisdom really speaks towards how we apply that knowledge, how we apply that information. And and revelation comes from the Greek word apokalypsis. This is where we get the word apocalypse. That's why it sounds like apocalypse. Now, we often think of apocalypse as referring to the end times. And while it may mean that in English, the Greek word just refers to any new insight or knowledge revealed from God. That tells us something about God. But Paul is not just referring to any kind of spiritual wisdom and revelation. Specifically at the end of verse 17, he says that this wisdom and revelation is in the knowledge of him. So who is the him? Well, the subject of this sentence is God the Father. 
So the knowledge of him is the knowledge of God the Father. And that word for knowledge in the Greek, when it says in the knowledge of him, it's a slightly modified form of the regular word for knowledge. It has this idea that this knowledge is specific in its direction. It is specific in its direction. This knowledge is meant to lead you somewhere. And in this case, this wisdom and revelation specifically points to God. It's to lead you towards this greater relationship with God. And additionally, to have knowledge of God. Like I said, it's more than just dry facts. When connected to the believer, this is more than just knowing about God. This is knowing God, period. You see, as an example, someone can gather all kinds of information about you over the Internet, right? And if you're on social media, there's a lot of information out there. They can find out where you were born. They can find out how old you are. They can find out if you're married, um, who your children are, the names of your spouse and your children, where you work, how long you've worked. They can find out all kinds of information. But knowing that information about you is not the same thing as knowing you. They can know about you. But only your close friends and your family truly know you. And in this case, we want to not just know about God. We want to know God. But there's one more independent or dependent clause, I should say, that we have to account for at the start of verse 18 in all this. Verse 18 in the NASB reads, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Now, the NASB translation, um, at the beginning of this sentence, the, those, those first three words, I pray that, you might notice that they're in italics. They're in italics because it's actually not there in the Greek. The translators put that in there in order to try to make it more clear what's being said. But in this case, I don't think it's really necessary. The ESV and the New King James do not insert those additional words. And in the process, I do believe they do a better job of connecting this with verse 17. So the idea is that God is praying. I mean, Paul is praying that God gives you this spiritual wisdom and insight, knowing that you have already had the eyes of your heart enlightened, enlightened. So I think the ESV and the New King James um, capture that well. Now, the phrase eyes of the heart is unusual, but it's not necessarily hard to decipher. Clearly, when Scripture talks about the heart, it is never referring to the physical organ. It is never referring to the physical organ, but rather our spiritual life, our spiritual condition. God said in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, Ezekiel 36, 26, that he would give us a new heart of flesh to replace the heart of stone. That was figurative language to say that he was giving us new life, new life that would enable us to seek God in a way that we didn't before. So the eyes of our heart refer to our spiritual sight. We're able to see what, what we once could not see as unbelievers. We are able to receive spiritual wisdom and revelation through the ministry of the Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts and minds to God's truth. And the word enlightened, it reflects this spiritual reality that you see all over Scripture, that this idea that we have brought, been brought out of darkness into light. The theme is all over Scripture, and Paul will return to it later when he commands us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, to walk as children of light. Light and darkness is always contrasting the revelation and the knowledge and the understanding of God, whereas darkness is those who are opposed, who are living apart from, who are in rebellion to God. 
So Paul's prayer here is that God will grant to you spiritual wisdom and revelation that will specifically grow you in your intimate knowledge and relationship with God, which is only possible because the eyes of your heart have been enlightened. Now, that's a great prayer from Paul. Amen. But when you consider all the things that Paul could have prayed for with regards to these believers, he could have prayed for their health. He could have prayed for their well-being, their families, their jobs, their comfort, their trials, that God would help remove those trials, that, that God would help with their unbelieving family members. And beloved, those are all good prayer requests. There's really no limit to the number of needs Paul could have prayed for. But what he wants most in believers is to reflect God's priority for you, for you to be able to grow, that you would receive spiritual wisdom and revelation that helps you grow in your relationship with God. You know, sometimes we, we kind of treat the scriptures as almost secondary. Some people will say, just tell me what to do. Don't tell me what to think. But the scriptures exist for a reason. What we do has to be informed by what we know. And we can't grow in the knowledge of God unless you dwell upon and read and understand the scriptures. Oh, sure, I can give you a checklist and tell you things to do and you can go ahead and do them. But you're doing them because I've told you you're not doing them because of the truth that you understand in the Bible. And that's why Paul, even the Ephesian church, and by the way, in the New Testament period, in this period where we have all these churches, there was probably no church more mature than the church in Ephesus. The Ephesian church would be, would be even recognized all the way in the book of Revelation, that they, they were actually faithful to recognize false teachers. But by that time, their faith had grown cold. But they were, for the most part, they had, they had withstood that entire New Testament period all the way to Revelation. But Paul here is writing to them to continue to to grow in godliness. And how do you do that? You do that by by opening your hearts, by seeking enlightenment through God, that he would continue to give you wisdom and revelation. And you also do this not only through the word, you do it through prayer. This is one of those differences between knowing about God versus knowing God. Someone who knows God spends time with God in prayer. You let your supplications be known. You lift up your praises. You recognize his greatness. You you pray for his will to be done. But why does Paul want us to grow in our knowledge of God through spiritual wisdom and revelation? To what end? To what purpose? Well, Paul goes on to tell us the purpose of this prayer. And that leads us to the third timeless pursuit that every Christian needs to walk faithfully with God. The third timeless pursuit that every Christian needs to walk faithfully with God. The first one was to remain steadfast in your faith and love. The second was to incline your heart to the illumination of God's word. And the third, which we won't finish this morning, but it's to desire the fruit of knowledge from illumination. To desire the fruit of knowledge from illumination. Picking it up from the second part of verse 18, we see verse 18 In that second part starts with the phrase, so that. In fact, reading it all together, it says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Now, teachers and preachers of the Bible love seeing these words, so that. 
It answers the question, why is this important? If you're ever reading this and you're wondering why is this important, when Paul says, so that, there it is. That's why this is important. Why is it important that, you, that, that God the Father gives you spiritual wisdom and insight in the knowledge of him? So that you would know these things, that you would know the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. That can only come from extensive study of the scriptures, extensive time with God. Oh, sure, you can look at this and you can probably take a stab at what these things mean. But when you really study the scriptures and you see all the facets of revelation, you see all the facets of salvation, you see the marvelous work of God throughout the history of redemption all the way to the point of Jesus Christ. You, you see the growth of the church through the book of Acts. You see God working through the church, working through the lives of believers. You see regenerated hearts around you. For some of us in this congregation, we have people right in this congregation who three years ago were not believers, even though they attended. And you've seen the fruits of their lives, what happens when, they, when their hearts have been awakened, when they've received new regenerated hearts. You've seen a fire lit under them. You see new desires. You see new priorities. And this has to happen through the continual communion with God, the continuous study of Scripture. Because I can tell you this, with the people that I know who have grown the fastest, with the people that I know who are the most devoted, they never do it absent the word of God. It always comes as a result of their study. It comes as a result of a heart that's been informed by the scriptures. You know, the scripture says, do not quench the spirit. And there are many ways you can quench the spirit. But one of the ways you can quench the spirit is, not by, is by not being in God's word, not seeking that insight, not seeking to understand, not seeking to apply, but rather being more consumer-minded and saying, just tell me what to do. The mindset needs to be, tell me what the scriptures say, help me understand it, so that then I can understand with you what it is we are to do. Because when you understand it, it's going to help motivate you, it's going to help move you, it's going to give you more purpose behind what you are doing, and it's going to allow you to do it from the heart. It's going to allow you to do it from a heart that seeks to glorify God in all that you do. And it's going to prepare you for all those circumstances, the unexpected circumstances that may come up. It's going to prepare you for times when you're counseling one another, when, when you see your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ go through situations that, that, that they don't know how to deal with. Because you've spent time in the scriptures, you can actually open it up and say, let me show you what scripture says, rather than saying, wait, let me call someone who might know the answer to this. Beloved, we have the answers to godliness and life in the scriptures. We have the answers just by studying them and by knowing them. That's why Paul lifts up these prayers. That's why of all things that Paul could pray for, he prays. He gives thanksgiving for your faith and love for one another. But he prays that the God of our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of all glory would give to you the spiritual wisdom and insight that can only come through God's word, through the ministry of this Holy Spirit, so that it would soak in your heart, that it would yield these fruits that allow you to grow in your holiness, that allow you to grow in your usefulness to the kingdom. And that's going to be so important in the book of Ephesians, because the book of Ephesians, by the time you get to the end of the book of Ephesians, not only is the last three chapters all about how we are to walk, you see that phrase over and over again, walk this way, walk this way, walk this way, walk in a way that, in a word, in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. But the end of chapter six gets into spiritual warfare and the armor of God. And you're all familiar with the armor of God, but that armor of God is meant for you 
you to be able to engage in spiritual warfare. It's meant for you to be able to be useful in combat, in spiritual combat. Because, folks, we are in the middle of a spiritual war, and you need to be informed by God's wisdom on how to fight it. When we start to lose sight of what's important spiritually and put our minds on what is temporal, what is material, what, what is only for the, this life and not the life to come, we start to lose sight of what's really important in the big picture. So we need to have that big picture mindset. Now, with regards to these three fruits of knowledge that is mentioned, I'll get into more detail about them next week. But uh, if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, let me make this appeal to you now because as we've seen from this letter, Paul is thankful for the faith of those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul is thankful for the love that they have for one another. And he's praying for wisdom and insight and revelation to be given to these believers. These are blessings. These are spiritual blessings that only come from salvation. These are spiritual blessings that you can only have access to if you know the Lord Jesus Christ. If you understand your need for salvation. If you understand that your works can never take away the sins uh, that you have committed in this life. And you understand that the death of Jesus Christ on the cross was meant to pay for the sins of all who would repent and follow after Jesus. If you know these things, if you understand these things, then I would call you right here and right now to repent of your sins and to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't leave today without speaking to someone. Speak to me or one of the deacons, or if you're a woman, speak to one of the deacon's wives. In fact, um, deacons, and I'm going to ask your wives also, surprise. Deacons and your wives, would you stand up um, if you're a deacon? So we got... Yeah, so look around. If you're new and you're looking for someone to talk to, you can talk to one of these men or one of these women. You can come seek me out. But understand that salvation, you can be seated, thank you. But understand that salvation only comes through the Lord Jesus Christ because only Jesus could pay for your sins. Only Jesus was fully man and fully God. Only Jesus lived a perfect life and was worthy of that sacrifice. And only through Jesus... Can you live in eternity in heaven and have a hope that surpasses all human comprehension? Now, for the rest of us, I pray that God would glorify himself through you and that God would glorify himself through you by your attentiveness to your relationship with God. Seek out God's word through his word. Seek to understand his heart. Seek to understand all that he has revealed here. Study these scriptures, apply them to your heart, and give praise to God for all the glorious truths that you learn through scripture. Because, beloved, there is no book more truthful, more beautiful, more perfectly connected than this book right here. Second place is not even close. And I tell you what else, at the end of your life on this, in this world... If you have devoted your life to knowing God, if you have devoted your life to understanding the scriptures, to digging into it and, and to be applying it to your life, to walking in faith each and every day, to, to seeking to show your love for the other saints. If you do that by the end of your life here, I guarantee you, you will not look back with any regret, but rather you will look back with thanksgiving over what the Lord has done with you and all that you have been able to accomplish through his power and through his word. Let us pray.